0: That throughout the day, Lord, we would remember what we heard, and that we would regurgitate it, and that we would try to live this word to the best of our ability, so that we can be great examples of Christ. We pray this all in the name of our holy Lord and Savior, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, again, if you're joining us for the first time, we've we want to welcome you. We've got a, a fairly extensive growth this week. Um, what a that is but uh, we'll open up the chat afterwards just so you know um, that way we can chat for a moment and uh, and you, you guys can have some time to, to talk but um, nevertheless we are glad you're with us this morning and uh, thanks for being here so well again we've been uh, going through evaluating continuationism. It was a, a study that, I did at uh, the Master's Seminary under uh, Prof. Nathan butznik, and he did such a wonderful job. I, I just thought it would be such a blessing to, to go over these uh, aspects and how um, this really, the seminar, is closet cessationist, how continuationism really actually affirms that the miraculous gifts have passed away. And so we began first by dealing with the topic of apostleship. And we noted that many uh, great men of God who are continuationists, men such as John Piper, Wayne Grudem, men who we highly regard, respect, even though they're continuationists, they admit that that something has changed, that there is no longer the ability for one to any longer be an apostle, but because they cannot meet the qualifications for apostleship. And so there is not today the apostolic authority that those in the New Testament had in their apostolic authority. They literally spoke the word of God. And thus we have what we have written in the word of God because of their apostolic authority. And so Wayne Grudem, uh, it says, reminding, it says that there were no apostles appointed after Paul. And certainly, since no one today can meet the qualifications of having seen the risen Christ with his own eyes, there are no apostles today. And then we moved from the, the reality of apostles and how they have faded after the last apostle passed away and while we may have the gift of apostleship in our day we ought not call it that because it just casts confusion we ought to call them church planters and so maybe you're gifted with the gift of apostleship in the fashion we call it the lowercase a apostleship meaning you're a significant uh person of church planting ability that would be me i i uh we planted a church, and there's a lot of work and extensive personality that goes into that. And, but nevertheless, never would I assume to the, have the gift of apostleship in which there is some apostolic authority. Most people want the title. They misuse the title. They manipulate you, uh, and they want to gain and, and, and really get in your pocketbook. Uh, And so that's important to be reminded that those apostles no longer exist because they can't meet the qualifications. And then we looked at prophecy and we talked about what a true prophet was and what a false prophet was. And so what we find in our day is that there were, well, biblically, there are three really standards. Number one, these who claim to be prophets must be doctrinally orthodox. Um, they must, secondly, have moral integrity. And then we we noted that third qualification for a true prophet was that they had predictive accuracy. Now, what we find in our day is a, a manipulation of the terminology, the biblical terminology, of, um, of prophecy. So, Uh, In our day, the continuation would say, well, prophecy isn't like it was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's changed a bit. They can be wrong. They can have errors. The problem is, guys, is that is man-made. The Bible is very, very clear that they must have doctrinal orthodoxy. Okay? Uh, They they must, any self-proclaimed prophet who deceives people, by leading them into theological error, uh, error is a false prophet. And we know that even though men, many may get these things right, if they lead you doctrinally in error, they're false prophets. If, they're, uh, if these men are, have no moral integrity, right, then, uh, then they are considered false. Prophets. I mean, we see prof, false prophets can be identified by their lifestyle and much what we see online as these people who claim to be prophets, they, they're consistently uh, in, involved in moral integrity uh, decline. They, they don't have the moral integrity that's required. And then the one that we focused on specifically was the predictive accuracy. Because this is the one that's being twisted so much in our day. Because what we find in Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 21 says, if they're wrong, they're to be put to death. God took it very serious. And so the the compromises that we find is that that many of these so-called continuationists uh, make the claim such as Jack Deere. They make the claim like, Prophets are really messy. Prophets make mistakes. Well, not real true biblical prophets. They don't make mistakes. Why? Because a prophet spoke the very word of God. And if they spoke the word of God, it would be true because God is not a liar. Now, the uh, the exact contrary to that, would be Satan, the father of lies. So if if I spoke something on behalf of God and it wasn't true, it wouldn't be of God, it would be of the devil. And so in spite of the fact that Scripture says a true prophet must be held to a standard of 100% accuracy, modern prophets simply ignore that standard, being content with the fact that their prophecies contain hundreds of mistakes. Listen, we live in a time that is bogus. And so that was the final kind of straw um, of the false prophets. And so this morning we move from uh, the apostles, apostleship, the the prophecy to tongues. And we're going to move to this third section and consider the gift of tongues. Now from the outset, it is most important uh, to note that the gift of tongues was, in reality, the gift of languages. Now, I agree with continuationist Wayne Grudem. Again, just because we disagree on some theological things, the reality is is I believe that Wayne Grudem is a brother in Christ. We can agree to disagree on some of his theological positions. The dude is sharp. He's very wise, but nevertheless, um, I don't agree with him on his position of apostles in some standard and his position on uh, uh, prophecy. But I do agree with what he says here. He says, Wayne Grudem says, it should be said at the outset that the Greek word glossy translated tongues, is not used only to mean the physical tongue in a person's mouth, but also to mean language. Now, in the New Testament passages where speaking in tongues is discussed, it, the, the meaning is languages. And, and, it, and that is what is certainly in view. Now, it's, uh, it is unfortunate, therefore, that English translators have continued to use the word, phrase, speaking in tongues which is an expression not otherwise used in ordinary English, which gives the impression of a strange experience, something completely foreign to the ordinary human life. But if English translations were to use the expression speaking in tongues, it would not seem nearly as strange if if they would give the reader a sense much closer to what we find in the first century Greek-speaking readers would have understood the phrase in which they read it in Acts or in 1 Corinthians. So I agree with him. (laughs) But if we are to think about the gift of languages, if we consider this ideal, then there is a difference. Um, If we consider the history of the church, which is important, I mean, you know the old saying, if it's new, it's not true, so we, we take history and we learn from it. We don't manipulate it or change it to accomplish what we want or to accomplish a theological proposition. No, we take the history and we learn from it. We find that the gifts of language was universally considered to be the supernatural ability to speak authentic foreign languages that the speaker had not learned. So, for example, if I were to go to Africa or China and go preach the gospel, the the, the miraculous gift of tongues was for those folks there to understand my country English in their native language. Now, in the early church, in the writings of all of these men like Ignatius and Gregory, uh, uh, Christom, Augustine, Leo the Great, and all these others support this very claim. So a few examples. Gregory of the Nazareth says, with foreign tongues, uh, they spoke with foreign tongues, and not the and not those of their native land. And the wonder was great, a language spoken by those who had not learned it. And the sign is to them that believe not and not to them that believe that it may be an accusation of the unbeliever as it is written with other tongues and other lips. I will speak unto this people and not even so will they listen to me, says the Lord. Now, these are writings from the early, early church fathers, Uh, John Christendom. Uh, commenting on first corinthians 14 1 to 2 says this and as in the time of the building of the tower of Babel, one tongue was divided into many so then the many tongues frequently met in one man and the same person used to discourse both the persian and the roman and the indian and many other tongues the spirit surrounding within them and the gift was called the gift of tongues because he could all at once uh, derive the languages. Augustine in 354 to 430 said that in the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterances. These were signs adapted to the time for it was necessary For there to be that sign of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show the gospel of God was to run through all tongues over the whole earth. In reaching this conclusion, the church fathers equated the tongues of Acts chapter 2 with the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, insisting that both places the gifts consisted of the ability to speak in languages. Now, the reformers similarly regarded the gift of tongues as supernatural ability to speak real foreign languages. So what we find is historically, there is this consistency throughout time of what this speaking in tongues meant. By way of example, here is John Calvin's treatment of 1 Corinthians 12.10. Calvin said those who were endowed with the gift of tongues were in many cases not acquainted with the language of the nation with which they had to deal. The interpreters rendered foreign tongues into the native language. These endowments they did not at that time acquire by labor or study, but were put in possession of them by a wonderful revelation of the Spirit. So these missionaries would go into these countries. They didn't have know the language. They didn't study the language, and they would get there, and God, through the miraculous signs of tongues, would, would speak this foreign language, and they would understand it. The name of the Reformers, and we could add to the names of the Puritans, uh, theologians like Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodges, Charles Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, among many others, even Charles Fox Parham, uh, the founder of modern Pentecostal, was absolutely convinced that biblical gifts of tongues consisted of the supernatural ability to speak in human foreign languages that the speaker had never learned. Isn't Isn't that interesting? So the very founder of the Pentecostalism, Believed that gifts were foreign languages. That's a miracle, and that's uh, that's that's great. So when he and his initially, his students initially experienced the modern gift of tongues, they thought it consisted of real human languages. Parham stated uh, his position clearly in a number of newspapers of the time. Uh, he stated, cited in the Topeka State Journal, January seventh, nineteen oh one, the Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of various nations without having to study them in schools. Parham cited in the Kansas City Times in January 27, uh 20 uh 1901, a part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they had to do is ask god for the power wow now he also cited in the hawaiian gazette may 31st 1901 There is no doubt that at this time they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues. If they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing they will thus be made able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among in their own language, which will, of course, be an advantage. The students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. They have them conferred on them miraculously, being able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. I have no doubt various dialects of the people of India and even the language of the savages of Africa will be received during our meeting in the same way. I expect this gathering to be the greatest since the days of Pentecost. So Parim, the founder of Pentecostalism, and his students were convinced by their study of the New Testament that the gift of tongue consisted of the miraculous ability to speak in human foreign languages that the speaker had not learned. But there was one major problem the tongues or or speech of Parham and his students quickly proved to be something other than human foreign languages. Uh, in, in, In the words of charismatic author Jack Hayward and Divine Moore, sadly, the idea of this glossetic tongues Foreign languages would later prove an embarrassing failure as Pentecostal workers went off to the mission field and the gift of tongues and, and, and found their hearers did not understand them. So other historians reported the disappointment faced by the early Pentecostals when it became clear that their tongues did not consist of authentic foreign languages. So what do you do then? Robert Anderson, uh, S.E. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society, investigated 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India, expecting to preach to the natives in those countries in their own tongue and found that by their own admission, in no single instant, Have they been able to do so? And as these and other missionaries returned in absolute disappointment and failure, Pentecostals were what? Happy? No. They were disappointed. And so because they were disappointed, they were compelled to rethink their original view of speaking in tongues. Imagine that. So it might be worth noting that the early, these early Pentecostals not only spoke in tongues, they also wrote in tongues. And some of these early tongues writings were published by local newspapers. So one of Perham's students was, was the first to speak in tongues on January 1st, 1901. She reportedly spoke in the Chinese language, thereby launching the Pentecostal movement. Osman also wrote in Chinese. Now, I could show you a picture of that. Um, one doesn't have to read Chinese to know that these markings bear no resemblance to real Chinese characters. When it became apparent that the Pentecostal understanding of tongues did not consist of human language, that the entire movement was faced with an interesting dilemma. They could not uphold their exegetical understanding of tongues and deny their experiences, or they could hold on to their experiential understanding of tongues and radically change their exegesis. So they could uphold what they understood to be true in their understanding of tongues, that that it was a foreign language, And they could deny their experience or they could obtain and hold fast to what they understood as tongues and just simply change the Bible. And they chose the latter. Driven by their experiences, then the modern charismatic movement was forced to redefine the gift of tongues. The gift of languages to mean something other than human foreign languages. That is because, quite frankly, the modern charismatic gift of tongues does not consist of authentic foreign languages. And thus, a new charismatic understanding of the nature of the gift of tongues emerged out of the 20th century Pentecostal experience. So now, to be fair, some continuationists uh, point to evidence to claim that modern Tongue speaking sometimes consists of an authentic foreign language. But those uh, simply don't hold up uh, under scrutiny. D.A. Carson, who's a a great man of God who has written many commentaries, uh, highly regarded in the theological arena, D.A. Carson rightly observed modern tongues are lexically uncommunicative. And the few instances of reported modern speaking in foreign languages are so poorly attested that no weight can be laid on them. So when professional linguistics studies these modern tongues, they come away convinced that contemporary tongues bear no resemblance to true human language. After years of extensive research, University of Toronto linguistic professor William Summary concluded that these languages or tongues consisted of strings of meaningless syllables made up of sounds taken from those familiar to the speaker and put together more or less haphazardly. The speaker controls the rhythm, the volume, the speed, the inflection of his speech, so that the sound emerges pseudo-language. Fake, false language is what that means. It emerges as pseudo-language in the form of words and sentences. These tongues is uh, is language-like because the speaker Uh, unconsciously wants it to be a language-like. Yet in spite of superficial similarities, these languages, these tongues, fundamentally are not languages. Now the Encyclopedia of Psychology and Religion says it in this way, these tongues is not a human language and cannot be interpreted or studied as human languages. That comes from The Strange Fire, page 135. It's a book I encourage you to read. It's put out by Dr. John MacArthur called Strange Fire. All of this raises some important questions. Has the church historically been right to conclude that the gift of tongues in the New Testament consisted of supernatural ability to speak in foreign languages previously unknown to the speaker? Or is it the modern charismatic movement who is right to conclude that the gift of tongues encompasses something other than cognitive foreign languages? Now, D.A. Carson asked that, that very question in his book, Showing the Spirit, on page 84 and 85 and he writes how may tongues be perceived there are three possibilities number one disconnected sounds ejaculations and the like they are not confused human languages connected secondly they could be connected sequences of sounds that appear to be real languages unknown to the hearer not trained in linguistics even though they are not and thirdly real languages known by one or more potential hearers even unknown to the speaker the biblical descriptions of tongues seems to demand the third category. But the contemporary phenomenon seems to fit better in the second category. And never the twain shall meet. They can't meet together. They, they, they It's either one or the other. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm going to stand on the scriptures. I mean, speaking in tongues, 99% of the times when it's done even in our day, even it's done improperly. There's no interpreter, it's just a bunch of babbling. No, tongues was given for the edification of the church. Carson helpfully articulates contemporary tongues appear to be real languages, even though they are not. And By contrast, biblical tongues consisted of real language, known by one or more of the potential hearers, even if it's unknown to the speaker. But if biblical tongues consisted of real human languages, a real language known by someone else, one or more potential hearers, then how can modern continuationists advocate tongue speech that does not produce human language? Most continuationists, like Wayne Grudem and Sam Storm, suggest that there are two types. So here we go again. Here we go again. Remember the Prophets? Well, there are two types of prophets, in-house, and so they they say there are two two types of categories of tongues in the New Testament. The first type consisted of foreign, genuine foreign languages like those on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. The other consisted of speech that did not correspond to any human language. Modern tongues fits the second category. That seems mighty helpful to them. It might be referred to as heavenly speech. The tongues of angels, a private prayer language. Listen, as one continuationist writer explained, one thing, this is Adrian Warnock, one thing that most of us agree on is that there are different kinds of tongues. I think that it is fair to say that the tongues of First Corinthians are different from those of Acts 2. Paul himself speaks here of different kinds of tongues. At least possible that there are different points in this passage. Paul is taking, talking about different forms of tongues. Sam Storm similarly uh, assists Acts two, where tongues that were clearly foreign languages uh, represents the exception. It's not normal manifestation. The tongues even in the new testament time uh, storm assumes uh, this position in order to argue uh, for two different categories of tongues in order to find a biblical precedence for the modern phenomenon so acts 2 sam storm says is the only text in the new testament where tongue speech consists of foreign languages to previously known by the speaker This is an important text, yet there is no reason to think Acts 2 rather than, says 1 Corinthians 14, is the standard by which all occurrences of tongue speech must be judged. So in an effort to find room, in an effort to squeeze in the modern definition or terminology for tongues, Storm sets Acts 2 against 1 Corinthians 14. When historically, the church has always considered the tongues in both passages to consist of the same phenomena. Again, you have the doctrine of man and the doctrine of the Bible. Doctrine of man tries to change the scripture to fit into their theology. If we're going to adhere to the word of God as sound, full, sufficient, and without error, then we have to interpret the Bible the way it's and for what it says. So, in an effort, they would even set the passages against each other. So, all of the continuationist solutions proposed, perhaps D.A. Carson's is the most unique. As we've already read, Carson is absolutely convinced that biblical tongues were real foreign languages. And he is equally convinced that modern tongues are not real foreign languages. Rather than embracing cessationism, which suggests the very opposite of what continuationists suggest, which in my mind is logical conclusion, Carson introduces a creative solution. So suppose the message is praise the Lord, for His mercy endures forever. Uh, remove the vows to achieve forever. So, this may seem a bit strange, but when we remember that modern Hebrew is written without most vowels, we can imagine that with the practice, this could be read quite smoothly. Now, remove the spaces beginning with the first letter, rewrite the sequence, In every third letter, repeatedly going through the sequence until all the letters are used up, and the result is jarga. And I'll post this because I'm, I'm reading it, uh, and so it may seem very confusing to you. But when you see it, you'll understand what I mean. I, I think that... This, this is an indistinguishable form of transcription of certain modern tongues. Certainly it is very similar to some that I've heard, but, but the important point is that it conveys important information provided you know the code. Anyone who knows the steps I've taken could reverse them and retrieve the original message. It appears then that tongues may bear cognitive information even though they are not real human languages. Just like a computer program is a, is a language that conveys a great idea of information even though it's not a language that actually anyone speaks. Now, I have great respect and honor for Carson's scholarship. Uh, he is one of the foremost conservative evangelical scholars alive today, but that explanation of how modern tongues might be analogous to biblical tongues is not convincing. It, it seems stupid. If We're going to be honest. We, we don't have uh, time to go into every single detail this morning to examine all the reasons why we disagree with two types of tongue theology uh, that the continuous use as their approach to, to, to tongues. To do so would require a, another session devoted just to that topic but but here's the point. the continuationist can argue for either two types of tongues, where they try to define a form of tongues from 1 Corinthians 14 that sounds like gibberish and, and does not correspond to any real foreign language, or they can argue for a code language where tongues are, are jumbled into some seemingly nonsense but actually convey cognitive content. Either case, their creative explanations, their, their, their creative... Evidence the 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 fact that they know modern languages are not real foreign languages or that that modern tongues are not real foreign languages. that's problematic because biblically speaking, they've always been foreign languages. If nobody can understand it, what edification is that for the church? Acts 2 explicitly defines tongues as a real language. The church historically understood the gift of tongues as the ability to speak in tongues as foreign languages, which this speaker had never learned. That's a miracle. That's the beauty of God working in pro- promoting the gospel. Even the original Pentecostals believed they were speaking in foreign languages. But now, continuationists tell us that tongues must be redefined. Well, listen, if you have to redefine it because it doesn't work, maybe it just doesn't work. Maybe it ain't right. Maybe the gift has ceased. Huh, interesting conclusion. Maybe they—they they, they, instead of redefining uh, to include mindless babble and linguistic nonsense, they ought to consider the biblical position of what it is to speak in tongues. It's a foreign language. Listen, that kind of redefinition again represents a major cessation to the sensationist position. After all, it is a tactic acknowledgement that the gift of that is the gift of foreign language as explicitly described in Acts 2, is not something the church still experiences today. So when you compare, when we compare biblical evidence to modern charismatic and continuation experience, we find that the two are not the same. As Norm Gosler observes, even those who believe in modern tongues acknowledge that unsaved people have tongue experiences. There is nothing supernatural about them. But there is something unique about speaking complete and meaningful sentences and discourse in a knowable language to which one has never been exposed. This is what the real New Testament gifts of tongues entails. Anything short of this as private tongues are should be considered the biblical gift, should not be considered the gift of biblical tongues. So, interestingly, tongues, I believe, were real foreign languages. And we ought to consider that. Now, we have talked about the sensationism versus continuationism, and how we're really saying that the continuation are really closet sensationists because most would admit, or they that 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 the apostles are no longer in our day that prophecy is not any longer like it was in Scripture, and now tongues are different. So so why are we changing what we've known to be true to fit some experience? Well, I think it's our the days we live. People want something spiritual. People want something unique. People want something, listen to me very clearly, more than the Word of God. And what I'm telling you is that when when you open your Bible and you read your Bible, that is how God speaks to you. You don't need a prophet to tell you anything. You don't need an apostle to give you some apostolic authority, some new revelation. You don't need uh, the gift of tongues. You have the Word of God. Now, if somebody goes over into Africa and they start speaking in English and the people in Africa understand, or in China or Japan, I don't have a problem with that. Although I don't think that's the case. We have been given the full, sufficient Word of God. And what people desire is more than the Word of God because they want experience. The word has indeed been given to us, to you, to me. He has spoken. There's that we didn't need nothing else. but we want to chase everything else. So the reality is um, we, we, we see that we see the confusion in the charismatic movement that tries to take the continuationist perspective and move into a different direction and redefine terminologies when the scripture is very clear, I think. Well, that's, that's uh, the time we have for that session. Um, Maybe next week um, when we meet, we'll talk about the gift of healing and uh, that'll be our fourth uh, gift to discuss um again this is a controversial topic You, you may disagree with me and that's okay we can agree to disagree but that's what we teach on this channel we're so, this channel is for 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 where we stand theologically as a church we're cessationists as a church we don't i, I listen i love D.A. Carson i love Wayne Grudem we disagree with them theologically but i still love them as a brother in Christ and i believe that um you know there may be some who disagree but it, it, My theory is I think there's a pretty good argument from which we've portrayed in the the gift of apostles, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of tongues that promote the reality uh, that support the doctrine of cessationism, that those gifts have ended with the death of the last apostle. And those gifts were given for the edification, the building up of the foundation of the church. And the church's foundation has been built, and Christ is the chief cornerstone. And when when Christ has come, He has given you everything you need. He's given you it all. He says here in Hebrews, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, what? He has spoken to us in His Son. It's through Christ, through the Word of God, whom He appointed heirs all things, through whom He made this world. So the reality is, is uh, we, we stand firm on the Word of God, that it is absolutely sufficient, that it is absolutely authoritative, and uh, nevertheless, uh, that is what we hold to at Family Bible Fellowship. So uh, I will open up the chat room for a few minutes, and then uh, we'll just take a few moments to talk, and, and I'll answer a couple of the questions. I see there's a couple here. I'll go ahead and answer those as we are um, transitioning, and then I've got to be done at 10 uh, pretty quick because I've got some things to do. Uh, but nevertheless, thanks for being here again. We we always uh, enjoy our time together. It's it's a true blessing, and I hope that you are encouraged uh, by this today as well, even though it's kind of more of a confusion or confusing uh, lesson because there's not a lot of PowerPoint presentations in which I can show you some of these things. But nevertheless, I'll try to answer some of your questions. So, uh, again, if you're joining us, thank you.